Hey everyone, welcome to Scribe Book School, where you're going to learn everything you need to know about how to write, publish, and market your book. Today's episode is the top 13 mistakes authors make while writing their book and how to avoid them. This is so important for any author because it can mean the difference between writing a great book and writing a terrible book. It can mean the difference between finishing your book and not finishing your book. It can even mean the difference between feeling like a failure or feeling like a success. So listen to this whole episode so you can avoid all of these mistakes. First mistake, too focused on selling copies. Uh, Authors, nothing wrong with selling copies. If you sell copies, cash your check. Uh, That's great. Uh, Take Amazon's money. They don't need it. All right. But if you're too focused on selling copies, that can create a lot of downstream problems. So the better frame, and we talked about this a lot, is to use your book to market yourself or your business or whatever it is you're trying to market instead of trying to sell copies of dead trees, right? It's a hard business trying to sell copies of books. It's an easy business when you use your book to promote something else. Now, uh, some of these, the, the, this, it's a little different for memoir versus uh, 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 regular nonfiction. This is one where I could see memoir being slightly different. Second big mistake. Quick, quick question on that yes. one, Tucker. How easily, how, how often do you see people falling into this particular trap and not even realizing that they're there? All the time. It, it's, it, I didn't order these in any specific way. Um, uh, like, but this is, it is such a deep trap. People don't even know they're in it. It's like a, trying to convince a fish that they're uh, swimming in water. Like until you get out of the water, you don't realize you're in it, right? And uh, so many people, when you actually unpack their assumptions about what they're supposed to write or how their book's supposed to be or what they're supposed to do, when you unpack their assumptions, the assumptions are built on the frame of, well, I have to reach a big audience to sell a lot of books. And as soon as you dismantle that frame and build the frame of, no, 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 I need to figure out what I want to get from my book and then reach the audience that'll get me that. Uh, 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 target the audience that'll give me that and write the book that'll appeal to that audience, then it's like a whole new books are unlocked and whole new avenues are explored and everything, everything's better in their life. They lose weight, six pack abs, all that. <laughs> Make sense? Yeah. All right. Second major mistake, too focused on bestseller lists. This is another one where uh, authors will say, yeah, I got to make the New York Times bestseller list. That's the thing. That's the only thing I care about. And then we start unpacking it and we realize uh, that either it's a pure ego thing, like they don't even care about their book. They just want their name somewhere that they think makes them important. Or they don't actually understand. They're like, oh, well, I thought a bestseller list was like the indication of success for a book. And it's really not, unless you're a professional writer, it's not the indication of success at all. So the better frame is to think that the riches are in the niches. You target a small audience to get the most impact on your brand and your business, right? And by targeting a small audience, it means bestseller lists and sales are often tied together in people's minds. Um, you're not going to sell a lot of books. If you write a book on um, SEO, that's not going to hit a bestseller list. But if you write a book on SEO for Dennis, that's definitely not going to hit a bestseller list, right? I mean, I'm talking about a big one, not Amazon. It's definitely not. But a book on SEO for dentists will almost certainly help your business more. Because uh, there's already a couple massive SEO books. So running just a book on SEO, it's going to be tough to compete. But you can own 
uh, SEO for Dennis niche. Next mistake, making the book all about you. Now, if you're writing a memoir, this is not a mistake. The book should be all about you, right? So again, this is only for knowledge share nonfiction. The better frame is that uh, to understand no one cares about you and no one cares about your book. They only care about what your book will get them, which by the way is also true for memoir. Like, no one has read David Goggins' book because they care about David Goggins. They read it because they care about themselves and they think they can learn from his life, right? And this is, you remember these, uh, uh, you might remember these uh, slides from the, the, the training, but I want you to think about this when you're thinking about your book. That is your avatar. Whether, I mean, it might be a, you know, a young girl or whatever, I get it. The person looking for books, looking for a solution is your avatar. He's not buying your book for him or for you. He's buying your book for him. So may, even though, even if you're writing a memoir and you write it totally for yourself, when you sit down to edit it, you got to edit for your reader, right? So you write 200,000 words and it's all, you know, every emotional brain dump there is, you edit that down to 50,000 words that are really sharp and that are really moving and motivating and interesting, you got a great memoir for readers. Okay. But Tucker, what if I want to put my face on the cover because I think people will care about me? If you are famous, there are two types of people who should, three types, who should be on the cover. If you're already famous, if you are, if it's a health and fitness book, and so you're kind of selling yourself, um, or if you are an arrogant jerk who's playing off the trope about not putting your face on the cover, which is what I did, right? Like, uh, uh, you can see this in business. Uh, the super arrogant jackasses put their face on the cover, like Jack Welch. The ones who are humble and smart, like Jim Collins, don't. Fourth mistake, not enough of your story in the book. This is super common for knowledge share nonfiction. People buy a nonfiction book for the benefit, but they finish it because it's got great stories in it. So the more you can teach through great stories, it can be your story or it can be other people's stories, but uh, often most people's best stories are their own stories. And those are the stories of being vulnerable, of uh, failure, of pain, of uh, uh, loss, things like that. Even in other words, the stories that people won't willingly tell usually unless yeah, people that uh, the stories that people don't normally want to talk about <laughs> those <laughs> right. are the ones that you should because those are the ones that people want to read um uh, always invariably in every single uh, way the more you share the parts that are hard the more people will stop and look ask me how i know but right. teach through vulnerable sharing that is absolutely the best way to go. You don't have to do that. It's just the most effective. Fifth mistake, too much of your story is in the book. So you can have too little or too much. People that, cause that's the thing, people only care about your story if they're learning something valuable from it and it's compelling, right? By the way, that's even true in memoirs. You can have too much of your story in, in a memoir. I mean, my book sold millions of copies. You know why? Because there wasn't a word in there that wasn't relevant to the reader. Every single sentence was either moving the plot forward, telling a joke, or entertaining the reader in some other way. That's it.
there were, I can't tell you what I forget what my word counts on my books are. I have no idea. It's 60,000 words. And I, my first draft was probably 80,000. And uh, the 25% I had to cut was stuff that I loved and thought was amazing and super interesting. And thankfully I had editors like Jeremy Ruby Strauss and Niels who would be like, and Charlie actually helped me a lot, who would say things like, Tucker, I know that that lunch you made from leftovers that random Friday was rare, very delicious, but no one else cares. <laughs> Thankfully, they uh, helped me with that. And so I was able to cut out all the nonsense that I thought was super interesting, but my readers didn't care about. It's a value of an editor, but once you get good at this, you can, you can adjust for that. And what's yeah. funny about this too, let me just say this. The people, this is always the way it works. The people who have the most interesting stories almost always are the ones who don't think they're interesting. Whereas the ones who don't have interesting stories are the ones who think that their stories are like amazing. We see this all the time. We'll get people who come in, especially guided off. They're like, everyone wants to hear my story. And we'll look at their stories like, yeah, maybe not. And then we'll talk to someone else who's like, yeah, I don't think my story's that interesting. And then they'll tell us and it's like, oh my God, that's incredible. It's all, there's, there's a weird inverse relationship between that. Um, which is my, why getting outside help is effective. Yes. Yes. My, my favorite phrase on this, I say it all the time, is you can't read the label when you are the bottle. You know, you, you cannot see objectively what's interesting about you or what's not interesting. You have weird emotional ties to your life experiences. And other people are fascinated by the things that you want to bury and hide. Yes. So you need that objective outsider telling you where, where you are. True that. Mistake number six, trying to be perfect. We're seeing this in a bunch of the scribe writers room people. Perfection is an impossible illusion. It is, uh, uh, perfection is a tool that people use to pretend they're not afraid and to hide from doing them themselves and, and from their work. The better frame is to keep your, the reader you're serving in mind and you'll forget about yourself and the book flows out. It's basically choosing fear over love. That is the frame I would highly, highly recommend to use. And uh, I, like literally today in Scribe Writer's Room, one of the new people was writing about this, uh, uh, about uh, they were just on and on and on about how perfect they needed their outline to be and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, stop. You're, you're way beyond what you need to start writing. Go write. You're afraid. You're being perfectionist. But he's like, oh, you're totally right. I get it. Yeah. So it's, if, you're, if you think everything has to be perfect before you keep going, you're never going to go. A uh, quick check-in since we're halfway through. Raise your hand if you relate to these mistakes already. Like even if you're not that far into your book, you're like, oh, dang, I can Dude, see Charlie, myself just, making these. You just filled my screen with the raised hand. <laughs> they come online because I'm the host. I can't even see the slides now. Stop raising your hands. <laughs> oh, you're getting pop-ups? Yeah, seriously, <laughs> I swear to God, man. <laughs> Hey guys, it's Charlie here. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you will love our free online workshops where we give you our exact step-by-step -step process for how to write, publish, and market your book. Again, this is 100% free and you can sign up at scribebookschool.com. During the workshops, we give you every piece of information you need to write a book, templates, video lessons, Q&As, and special tricks from your instructor, Tucker Max, a four-time New York Times bestselling author. There's no cost, no catch, it's just free. You can sign up for our next live workshop at scribebookschool.com. Back to the episode.
Uh, mistake number seven. I didn't know it was going to do that. Seriously, my whole screen just went <laughs> flooded with Papa. Well, now, now we know, we know how, how to mess to with troll. you. Yeah, now you know how to troll me. Seriously. Uh, like it's a good thing there's not only a few hundred people in this webinar. It's not in the thousands like before. God forbid. Mistake number seven. You put too much pressure on the book to do things that it can't. I am definitely guilty of this. Remember this slide from uh, uh, Objectives? These are things that are utterly unrealistic for almost everybody. But if you put this as an objective, you're not putting an immense amount of pressure on the book. Now, I'm not saying don't like, if any of these things happen, that's cool. Take them if they happen, right? Uh, you can even wish for them in, in a sense. But if you think this is why I'm writing my book, then you can have a very successful book and think you're a failure, or you can have so much pressure. My book's gotta be a New York Times bestseller that it, it freezes you and stops you from moving forward. The better frame is to be realistic about what's possible and what you really want from your book. Because again, a lot of people, once you start unpacking their fantasies, they realize, yeah, that'd be cool to have, but that's not really what I want, right? That's not the emotion that's getting me to write this book. Achievable goals, achievable objectives help you actually take action, right? Does that make sense? Can you good. give some examples uh, just as a refresher for yeah, some good I, I, achievable I, ones? I will, I will. So um, achievable objectives, yes. So let, let me give you a really good example. Um, I want my book to sell a million copies and be a New York Times bestseller and make me famous, right? So that's like, that's an ego set of goals. That is like, I want to be important and I want my book to validate me. That's really what someone's saying when they say all of that, right? Whereas the, 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 the um, realistic version of that is I want to use my book uh, to become well-known in my niche so that um, I can, uh, uh, you know, I want to use my book to become the, the dominant leader, one of the dominant uh, thought leaders in my niche and uh, be able to kind of like own that category, right? Something like that, depending on the size of the niche totally achievable. Like if you, it's like what I said, like I want to be famous versus I want to have the best book on SEO for dentists. It's like, okay, you can absolutely have that. Now here's the thing. I'm not saying all those goals are under, you want to set big 10 year goals and build to them. Cool. Great. I'm with you. That's totally possible. We've had authors do that. Right. But if you're like, Oh, I don't have any audience at all. I'm just, you know, a successful entrepreneur. And I think I want my first book to do what takes most professional writers 10 years to build to. Uh, you're again, it's, you're putting too much pressure on yourself and you're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. And it's far more reasonable to say, I would like to go into meeting new people in my field with credibility right out the gate instead of having to establish it over and over and over right. in conversation. Mm -hmm. Like that's a very legitimate thing that can happen. Yes. And again, let me really emphasize, it is totally cool to have ambitious long-term goals. It's even cool to have ambitious short-term goals. That's totally cool. I'm, God knows I do that. Fuck man, we launched Scribe Book School in two weeks. That's insane what we did with that. Like there's nothing wrong with ambition. I'm a big ambition fan, but I also uh, understand that ambition can bleed over into lunacy. If you Illusion, let it, yeah. God knows I've done that to myself. And then what, if you have like lunacy is a strong word. If you have unrealistic ambitions, then it's um, deflating and crippling.
I have definitely done that. I've done that to this company before, which sucks, but true. Next mistake, playing it too safe. We see this a lot, uh, especially in, believe it or not, the high, it's almost like the more successful people are, the more they tend to play it safe. I believe the better frame is to say what you believe and what will help your reader, regardless of the opinion of others. In my experience, people who are deeply worried about what other people will think uh, in books are almost always uniformly way over overthinking it. And th that belief is a way to hold themselves back. You guys heard yesterday morning when Brita, she was one of the, the authors who uh, guided authors. She talked about this. She's like, I thought attorneys would criticize me. I thought this, I like, I was so worried about this. And she's like, yeah, I had a few people who said some not nice things, but the response was overwhelmingly positive. And I launched a new career off of it. And so many people are so happy about this and so thankful uh, that's when she was like, you know, I, I feel dumb about my old fears, which is all not, that's her own issue. You don't need to put yourself down because you had old fears. Those fears were realistic or, or uh, were meaningful to you at the time. But um, it's okay to be afraid of that. But then focus on your reader and what will help them and serving them. And you're going to be okay. What's the, uh, what's the cost of playing it too safe? I mean, a lot of people I'd imagine are like, oh, the, the cost of not playing it safe is, is far worse. Emily, can you read the quote on your wall for the cost of playing it too safe? I wonder what I could have written if I cared what I had to say. Interestingly, I also have another quote by Glennon Doyle that says, the braver I am, the luckier I get. Oof. I think those go together. I'm writing that down. And I'll share personally, I had, I published a book six years ago and thought I was being very, very brave, but knew a part of me had held back a little on stuff that was important, but I just didn't feel safe saying. And I think about the one negative average review that I've gotten that was like, he held back. That's the only negative review that like I still think about. And so people can tell, readers can tell when you withhold what matters. I just want to point out to everyone that that was Charlie's humble brag. He's only had one negative review. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've had many. There's only one I remember. <laughs> no, humble brag. No. You know, know not reviews. one negative review. <laughs> Tucker, I don't know if you want to get into this now, but we definitely were seeing a lot of people yesterday who were commenting. They're working on memoirs and they, they have this desire to hold back because they're really concerned about hurting people. Yeah, so that is a little bit different. Uh, what I, when I say playing it too safe, I'm talking about in the context of a knowledge share nonfiction. Uh, I will say, I said this yesterday, and I, I teach this in the memoir course, that I believe the way, the way we teach to write a memoir is you write flat out, full out, say everything in your vomit draft. Everything goes in there because you're the only person who will ever read it. Then when you want to go back and edit, uh, then it can make sense to um, think about how your book will be perceived by the people you care about and the impact it will have on them. There's a way to do that that's both healthy for you and validating for you uh, and, and confirming of, of your reality, uh, but also um, uh, 
I don't want to say protective is not the right word, respectful of others. Um, there's a way to do that. And I, honestly, we did not dive as deep as we should have in the first memoir course, the one that's on YouTube now. But we're going to uh, do the memoir live training again in June. And I, uh, I'm going to really dive deep into that. And I'm going to really build a lot of structures for that for people. Cause I know how to do it. It's just I didn't, uh, it's just a lot to explain. So, um, but yes, that is a little bit different in memoir. Um, uh, because there's a couple layers of complexity more, but again, for both of them, right? Full out the first time, no doubt. Mistake number nine, getting stuck on irrelevant details. Who has seen this clip, by the way? Say it in the chat. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> of course. Everyone's seen this. It's like a famous internet meme. Um, uh, uh, getting stuck on irrelevant details is super, super uh, common. It's, a, it's an avoidance technique. It's a fear technique. Perfectionism. It's a way to, to, to avoid writing the book. So it's a form of resistance. The better frame is to ask yourself, does this detail actually make my book better? You'll, you'll see this in Scribe Writer's Room. If you're, if you're already members, uh, you can see it. If you scroll, you can see it. And if not, if you join today or to, uh, tomorrow, whatever, you'll see. There, uh, probably once a week at least, someone will ask a question and I'll respond, how would the answer change your book? <laughs> and like, sometimes people get a little butt hurt. They think I'm making fun of them or criticizing. I'm not. I'm pointing this out. Like I'm, I'm asking, how does knowing this information actually make your book better? And it's never like, it's very rare. I, I say that it's just when there's a question where I can tell someone's like, oh, so can you tell me the exact measurement of the pen type of that other pen that I'm never going to use, but I'm just curious about it. It's like, no, you don't need to know that. That has nothing to do with your book. Focus on your book. But right, if it doesn't matter, ignore it. Mistake 10 an obsession with finding perfect writing tools. I will admit, I am a junkie for pens. That's why we have super fancy scribe pens. These are like 15 or 20 bucks. Uh, and then we have super fancy, like the notebooks, the swag stuff we were giving away yesterday. They're fancy because I like fancy tools. They don't make me better writers at all. I just like having fancy tools, right? This is a distraction. Pick your tools and then use them. And, and the more you focus on the writing itself and how your writing serves your reader, the better off you'll be. You don't need to test every piece of software. You don't need to, you know, go crazy, test every single pen on earth, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't matter. Find something that works well for you that you're comfortable with and then go. Mistake 11, using your book for emotional validation. Now, I want to be careful about this. Taking emotional joy and benefit from your book is amazing and not only valid, it's what you should be doing. You're not a robot. This book matters to you. But the better frame is to use your, to think about your book as a way to serve your reader. And I'll explain what I mean here by this because this might be a little confusing. In no way, shape, or form am I not telling you that uh, uh, to enjoy the, the book process, to be proud of yourself, to uh, experience the emotions that come up. Of course, we teach that, right? Where you wanna be careful is where you see the book, and I actually probably should rename, we should rename this, using the book to validate your identity. Probably is a better way to frame it, is if um, basically, we see this all the time. People come in, they wanna feel that they're more important than they are, or just more important, and so they're like, okay, I need this book, uh, to make me feel better about myself. Those are the same people who are obsessed with how much it sells, what bestseller list it hits, 
uh, if they get on Oprah's show, the ones who are obsessed with the um, the uh, success of the book and and not how many readers it impacts, but by the like commercial success or the external success, those are the ones who are using the book for emotional validation always. And I see this again and again and again. These are the uh, the Buddhists call these people hungry ghosts, and these are the people that are in the endless search for something to fill the hole in, in their soul. And I'm not criticizing them. I used to be one. Uh, I used to be a bad one. I've gotten way better. Still definitely some of that in me. Um, I'm still working through that. Uh, but I used to be uh, an oblivious hungry ghost. Now I'm an aware hungry ghost. Um, but all of us are to a little degree. So uh, it's okay if you're like, I want this book to make, I, I want to feel better about myself. Uh, through the process of doing this book or whatever, that's cool. That's great. I'm not saying that's a mistake. I'm just saying if you look at the book as, oh, I'm going to do a book and then magic, all my problems are solved. I feel better about myself. I'm important, right? So I should, maybe the better title, using the book uh, to create significance for yourself or to feel significant. That's probably Tucker, the better way to say it. Would this have resonated with you back when you were a hungry ghost? Probably not. Have... No. <laughs> So what got you out of that trap? Massive failure, therapy, and psychedelics. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, in that order. <laughs> yeah. yeah seriously. It's a big hole to climb out of and the book won't, mm -hmm. won't do it. We can talk, it's, uh, we can talk about that later, but that, uh, my journey out of it. Um, now here's the crazy thing. If you use your book to serve your reader, if you really show up in service and do a great book, then the book's going to get you validation in the end because people will love it and they will tell you they love it and you will see the lives that you change, which is, the, that's the funny thing. I was definitely a hungry ghost when I wrote, I hope they serve beer in hell. But the thing I did have, I had next to it, which is a very rare thing, but I did have it, is I really realized this book is not for me. This book is for my readers because, and it was kind of an accident how I learned this. Um, I learned it because when I started writing emails to my friends and I didn't define as a writer, I put no identity on, on writing. And so like, um, to me, writing was just a thing I did and that's it. Right. And so, uh, what mattered was I made my friends laugh. And so I just changed, worked on my writing until my friends laughed. And then I was happy. That was my identity is I made my friends laugh. You know, I had followed my friends. And so like I got into writing because my writing made people laugh and I like making people laugh. And so I did real, I had no identity, no attachment to being a good writer. I had attachment to, to making people laugh. And so that's why my writing has the style it has, why it's so stripped down and there's no artifice and no pretension in it and why people who hate books love it and people who love books too, but also people who hate books. And why it sold millions and millions and millions of copies is because I really did, as narcissistic as I was and self-centered as I was at that point in my life, and I was, I understood the point of the book was not for me. And it worked. That's why it worked. Mistake 12, expecting everyone, expecting to know everything before you start. So we see this again, especially in writer's room. Uh, uh, a lot we see it. 
where people like will obsess over their outline, even though we tell you, you only need to be about 80% done, 90% done, and then start writing. Uh, again, this is alleviating anxiety, it's perfectionism, it's all that kind of stuff. The better frame is to do enough positioning outlining to confidently start, but then understand you're going to have to let the rest of the book emerge as you write. Because if you're one of those people who's like, my outline has to be perfect, chances are you're doing 10 times more than you need to. <laughs> if, now, if you're like, oh yeah, I worked on my outline for an hour, I'm sure it's fine. Those people need to spend more time on the outline. But the, those of you who are like, oh, I'll spend three weeks on my outline, four hours a day. It's like, no, 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 that's too much time. You don't need that much time. You're just avoiding the book. Mistake 13, editing as you write your first draft. This is probably the number one mistake. If I had to pick them and rank them in order, this would be the worst mistake you can make. What's the better frame? Boop, I'm a draft. We talked about this extensively yesterday. If you missed yesterday, cool. This is in the how to write your book section. Go over this a lot and listen to what I say and then do it. Uh, vom write it out first. We say vomit, meaning like, because like when you're vomiting, you don't care how you look. You just want to get finished. Don't read it as you write. Don't edit it as you write. Just go straight down, write it all, and then go back and edit. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you found this episode valuable, then definitely check out our free online workshops at scribebookschool.com. During the workshop, we'll teach you our exact step-by-step -step process for how to write, publish, and market your book. It's totally free, and you can watch it right from the comfort of your home. Again, you can sign up at scribebookschool.com. And beyond that, you can support the podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay tuned because we have a lot of good stuff coming on Scribe Book School. Mm -hmm.